During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a podcast I think you should check out. It's called Future Hindsight, a weekly show that embraces the civics lifestyle. Listen to Future Hindsight wherever you get your podcasts or at futurehindsight.com, and keep an ear out mid-show when I tell you more about it. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the criminal charges against Donald Trump that the January 6th committee has referred to the Department of Justice, but examine them through the lens of past presidential crimes that have gone unpunished from Nixon to George W. Bush. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, The Brian Lehrer Show, Counterspin, This Week, and The Young Turks, with an additional members-only clip from The Mehdi Hassan Show. Robert Weissman, uh, head of Public Citizen, if you can talk about um, these four criminal charges—obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, false statements to the federal government, and inciting or assisting an insurrection—these are the criminal charges that the House Select Committee is referring to the Justice Department. Yeah, I think what's important about them is maybe two things. One, you know, for those of us who are watching January 6 unfold in real time, it sort of seemed as a rally that sort of spun out of control. And what the January 6 committee has showed beyond any doubt and is now uh, referenced in the referral to the Justice Department is that the insurrection was planned and intentional. In fact, we have reason to believe that Trump actually hoped to be at the Capitol leading the physical insurrection. So it wasn't something that was an accident or a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was part of an overall scheme. That's, I think, the first point. The second thing that the committee has shown, and is again reflected in the referral, is that the insurrection itself was part of a broader scheme to overthrow the election. Again, in real time, I think a lot of us seeing what happened after the election in November of 2020 thought this stuff was just sort of child's play and kind of Trump sort of working out his own psychodrama, claiming there was a fraud and a lie when uh, a fraud and again, uh, the election when there never had been. But what we now know is that there was an actual orchestrated significant scheme that could have succeeded to overthrow the election. And so the four charges together reflect both those things, the intentionality behind the insurrection and the, over, the multifaceted overall scheme that Trump led, masterminded, orchestrated, and nearly succeeded in carrying out. And talk about technically what this means, that this House Select Committee is referring criminal charges to the Justice Department. The Justice Department is investigating separately. They don't need this to indict the president. But so what does it mean? Well, that's right. The Justice Department is going to make its own determination. They're free to ignore, if they choose, uh, what the House Committee has now referred to them. But I think they're not going to ignore it. For one thing, the committee has generated a lot of evidence that's now going to be made available to the Justice Department, and that should inform the decision that the Justice Department takes. I think what's going to be really important for the reasons that Chairman Thompson laid out at the beginning, and as Ruth just said, that the Justice Department proceed with a prosecution. There are going to be a lot of reforms proposed. The House Republicans are not likely to move forward with them. 
Um, one significant reform is going to probably be achieved in legislation in the next couple of days to deal with ha- the mechanism of counting the electoral votes. But at the end of the day, the most important thing to prevent this kind of coup from ever taking place again is accountability for the people at the top. And most importantly, for the single person who masterminded it, uh, Donald Trump. Now, whether the Justice Department proceeds with this, that decision has now been kicked over, at least in the first instance, away from the actual uh, leadership of the Justice Department to a special prosecutor, Jack Smith. Hopefully, he's going to make the decision soon to proceed with an investigation and have the Attorney General Merrick Garland agreed that that should take place. The longer they wait, the harder it's going to be politically to proceed with a prosecution. Now, Jack Smith, uh, Professor Ben-Ghiat, is an interesting guy. He served as head of the Justice Department Public Integrity Unit in 2010. He served in The Hague, um, prosecuting war crimes. He was also involved in New York City in the uh, prosecution of a group of New York City police officers involved in the 1997 attack on Abner Louima, the Haitian immigrant who was raped sodomized and attacked by New York City police. Um, Can you talk about Jack Smith and, more significantly, also, what that history means from uh, police corruption and violence to The Hague? We'll set to uh, assess um, the activities um, of—just keeping to Trump for the moment—of somebody uh, like Trump, who has such a broad range of criminality. You know, it's—there is no one else in America—I can think of Berlusconi in Italy uh, as a partial uh, equivalent—who is criminal in so many ways as Trump. So the fact that uh, Jack Smith has prosecuted, you know, a sitting politician. He's done corruption cases because, of course, we heard, you know, that one of the charges is that Trump was trying to defraud the U.S. government, and fraud is what he does, right? Let's remember that when Trump ran for office in 2016, he was um, under investigation for fraud for Trump University. And then, of course, the, the, the prosecuting in The Hague is extremely important because, you know, this has never happened before, but Donald Trump is somebody who's different than any president we've ever had, Republican or Democrat, because he is an autocratic individual. The people he admires, the leaders he admires are autocrats, and he has no regard for human life whatsoever. And so he would commit war crimes if he could. Indeed, we heard from uh, John Kelly and Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book that he wanted—he was disappointed that his generals were not acting like Hitler's generals. So Jack Smith, uh, with his range of experience, seems to be the perfect person that we have been sent at this moment in time. So, Jill, take us back some 50 years to the aftermath of the Watergate scandal and the debate over how to hold the president and his co-conspirators accountable. Nixon, as we know, had to resign the presidency, which many people considered punishment enough, but he was never prosecuted for what many people considered crimes. So what went into those deliberations? Well, there were a uh, variety of opinions on the staff of the Watergate special prosecutor, I was for indicting Richard Nixon while he was the sitting president and then raised that issue again right after he resigned. 
Uh, Leon Jaworski opposed that position. And while we were discussing it after he resigned, when Leon was more inclined to accept that position, he got pardoned by his successor, Gerald Ford, and that ended the possibility of indictment. He was named an unindicted co-conspirator in the indictment. And so in a way, he did get some accountability through the trial of his co-conspirators, but he did not get indicted. And um, as you said, Gerald Ford and many others thought that it needed to be ended, and that's why he pardoned him. I think that was the wrong decision, and we're seeing the historical uh, result now. If he had been indicted, he would have been convicted in the same way that if he had gone to trial in the Senate, he would have been convicted. And that would have ended the discussion today about can you or can you not indict mm -hmm. a former president? Mm -hmm. Can you hold someone accountable for crimes committed while in office? And the answer would have been clearly yes. Yeah. Um, I just want to add one other thing, which is you mentioned the roadmap and the roadmap in the context of Watergate was a document that we prepared to give to the House Judiciary Committee, which was doing the impeachment inquiry. So it was us giving them the evidence as a roadmap to impeachment versus in this case where the House Committee is giving the Department of Justice a roadmap. And that's a very different circumstance. You know, Julian, I saw the presidential historian Michael Beschloss on television the other day saying not prosecuting Nixon might have seemed like a good thing at the time. Uh, our long national nightmare is over, I think was what Gerald Ford said. And uh, resigning the presidency was considered consequences enough, consequence enough by many people, accountability enough. Uh, but that that doesn't wear well over time because of the lack of precedent that it sets for Donald Trump, who allegedly has committed much worse things than Richard Nixon even did. Do you agree with Michael Beschloss about that? I think there's a strong argument to be made that when President Gerald Ford decided uh, to pardon Nixon, it was choosing at least an imagined path toward healing the nation, which isn't actually what happened, uh, over accountability. And that when you miss the chance to impose accountability, when it's viable, uh, when the political circumstances are, are right, um, you leave things undone. And I do think uh, kind of the Nixon case is, is a famous one with the president and the individual where things were not resolved. And I do believe that since that time, uh, there's been a high cost. And, and I'll add, he didn't heal the nation. Uh, the nation you know, moved further apart. Gerald Ford's own standing plummeted after he issued this pardon. So it didn't even work the way he anticipated. Jill, um, as we look at the January 6th convictions and prosecutions that are taking place and that they're all so far of pretty low level individuals, right? The, just those who heeded the call to come to the Capitol that day and took the step of breaking in. Uh, or trying to obstruct the proceedings, things like that. When we look back at Watergate, some of the high-ranking officials of the Nixon administration did go to trial, did go to prison, even if Nixon himself didn't, 
right? We're not seeing that yet with January 6th, but that happened in Watergate, didn't it? It did happen, and it is what must happen here. Uh, As I said, I am all for indicting, assuming that there is nothing in the evidence that we don't know that would be exculpatory. Mm-hmm. Based on the evidence that is available to you and me and Julian right now, the evidence seems to be clear that there have been crimes committed and that there needs to be accountability for that. But yes, the chief of staff, the chief of domestic policy, the former attorney general um, all went to jail. The White House counsel went to jail. Um, so all of those people went to jail on the same crimes for which Richard Nixon was guilty and was a co-conspirator. There's no question about his guilt. And the evidence was very strong, very clear. I guess what I want to get at is I think a lot for the public there's an important distinction to be made about Donald Trump and then what also enablers did. And the idea of even if Trump, you know, in some fanciful other planet goes to jail, will that still prevent another thing like this from happening? So there's an interest in sort of separating out the criminal charges against an individual and how do we also as a society address the problems that were obviously evidenced on that day? That's right. No, that that is definitely right. There is more than one solution needed to the problem of an insurrection. This is a piece of it, what we're talking about now, the individual who is most culpable being held accountable. And the fact that that person was the president of the United States makes it more important, not less, that we do, in fact, hold him accountable. Um, That's the piece the DOJ is pursuing. That's the piece that is being pursued in in Georgia prosecution. And, you know, we want to see it borne out. We want charges and we want them to stick. However, separately, we also need to reform our democracy such that no other president can ever be this bankrupt morally and, and can't do anything like this again. And so there are a lot of threads to that. One piece, actually, we had a victory this week. I don't know if People are, are paying attention to this, but the Electoral Count Act reforms, which we, which many of us yeah. uh, in D.C. have been lobbying for for months now, um, passed uh, or were included as a part of the year-end budget deal. So we'll soon pass. So this is is critical because you know it could prevent the idea of of the vice president uh, simply in his posture as as chair of the Senate as he is he's overseeing an electoral count could change what he's perceiving. So, you know, that sort of unclear language in the original Electoral Count Act is what Trump relied on and misled his followers around and certainly part of what sparked the insurrection. You know, assuming the Electoral Count Reform Act passes, that will no longer be an option. Uh, We need that and we need other reforms to continue to protect democracy to move forward as well. Well, let me ask you about those because I, I feel like we're all getting kind of a civics lesson about what laws are meaningful, what laws it turns out they don't mean anything if you don't, uh, you know, push on them. And, you know, we're all learning a lot here. And I think a lot of folks are sort of thinking that their idea about 
what's right and what's wrong is somehow reflected in the law. And we know that that's an imperfect relationship. And so there are other things that we could make more sturdy. There are other things that we could back up in order to setting Donald Trump aside in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. What are some of those also? Well, certainly a lot of the reforms that we're talking about are contained in an omnibus legislative package called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which we are hopeful could garner some bipartisan support, as did the Electoral Count Act reforms I was just talking about. So what it would do is, is shore up a lot of the loopholes that the Trump administration showed us exist, you know, as you say, you know, one of the the main things we learned from his administration is that many things that we always thought were law were actually just norms. (laughs) We're actually just things that presidents have always done, but they're actually not required to do. So take his, you know, his tax returns is a a clear example of that. Um, You know, all presidents have always released them, but they were not apparently yet officially required to do so. So those kinds of things. So, you know, uh, some of the reforms carried within that legislation are things like improving our whistleblower laws so that it is easier for those within government who are seeing things that might be coming from an unhinged president. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, those can be more easily shared and those people are protected. Things to shore up our inspectors general so that, you know, if pressure is being applied, you know, to agencies or across the country, they'll be able to to catch it and they'll be protected and, and won't have to fear being fired without cause. You know, those are just a couple things. But I think there are you know, numerous places where where the fact that laws are not as clear as we once thought, he was able to take advantage of that and, and abuse our ethical assumptions. You wrote in your op-ed in The Times, it took almost a decade to set in place a suite of laws to deal with the toxic foundation of Nixon's presidency. So that's not just about who goes to jail for Watergate. That's about something structural. So what happened then and what question do you think it raises for now? Yeah, I mean, there were two streams of issues. One was Nixon and the individual connected to the presidency. Do you have uh, accountability? And that's a large part of the January 6th report. But then there was a second question in the 1970s. How do you fix the system? How do you deal with some of the underlying factors that allowed Nixon to do um, what he did? Kind of what were the roots of the imperial presidency? And the 70s is a really interesting period in that you have this coalition of uh, good government reform organizations like Common Cause, legislators uh, on on Capitol Hill, often uh, referred to as the Watergate babies, uh, people who were elected in 1974 and were committed to making the system better, and investigative reporters. And they pushed for uh, legislation for years. Um, And although it wasn't perfect, uh, there were a lot of important bills that get through in the 70s, including campaign finance reform in 1974, uh, reform to the intelligence uh, system in 1978, uh, before Nixon steps down, war powers resolution, budgeting reform, ethics and government reform, and much, much more. And the point was, uh, reformers understood that you can't always contain 
uh, or anticipate bad behavior uh, by elected officials. So part of the challenge is how do you strengthen the democratic system? And, and I think that's a question right before Congress today. Um, there was one uh, initial success with uh, reform that passed last week of uh, the Electoral um, Account Reform Act, which tries to close some of the holes that Trump wanted to exploit. Uh, but much more needs to be done uh, from uh, voting rights uh, to additional protections of how the electoral count actually works. Unless we do that, I think we're perpetually uh, going to be uh, in a dangerous place. Jill, anything you want to add about the reforms that Watergate brought or ones yes. you're looking for after January 6th? Uh, let me talk first about the the ones from Watergate, which um, definitely included campaign uh, reforms that were essential because without so much un, uh, unaccountable money, Watergate wouldn't have happened. The White House had hundreds of thousands of dollars, which back then was like millions of dollars, in safes in the White House that they could use for anything. And so they used it for stupid things like the Watergate break-in, which if they were making decisions based on limited resources, they would have never used it for that. But that was undone by the Supreme Court in Citizens United. So the protections that we got in that legislation have been undone, and Congress hasn't found a way to reform uh, the campaign system. Um, I would say the the other big difference is that even with the Electoral Count Act reform, which is wonderful and was very much needed, was one of the most obvious things that was needed, that can only cure what has already happened. They have stopped the gaps that were trying to be exploited by Trump and his colleagues. But what happens when you have bad, immoral people in office, they will think of new ways around existing laws. And I, I think, as Julian said, you cannot always predict what the new ways around are. The only way around that is electing people of good moral character and not people who are liars. Your last segment, you were talking about Santos and his lies. Um, if he's in Congress, he can't be trusted any more than Donald Trump, who has a history of lying, can be trusted. So we have to focus on better candidates. That doesn't mean we don't add all the laws that we can possibly add that might stop this. But who would have ever predicted a president would try to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power? That's something that is so unlikely that no law existed to stop it in the same way that there's no enforcement to the Emoluments Clause, because we never really thought a president would do what Donald Trump did. And so we need to fix all of those things that we now know about. But predicting what future evil may come is a little harder. David, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Talk about what you found most significant, what you were most surprised by in these latest tax releases. Well, that Donald used a number of legal devices to reduce taxes is no surprise. But he did something absolutely brazen. 
Uh, and that requires we go back to 1984. That was the year Trump Tower was selling apartments like crazy and his first casino opened. So he had Amazons of cash flowing into his pockets. He filed a tax return that included something called a Schedule C. That's what freelancers uh, use. It's what I use for my book writing business. And on it, he showed no revenue, but over $600,000 of expenses. Auditors from the city of New York and the state of New York spotted that, disallowed it. Trump demanded trials. Uh, he lost both. The judges wrote scathing opinions about what he was doing. So what turns up in these six years of tax returns? Well, he filed 65 of Schedule C's. 26 of them had zero revenue and hundreds of thousands of dollars in expenses. There were a handful of others where the income and the expenses exactly to the dollar equaled out, which is impossible to believe is anything but manipulation. For those 26 returns where he was on notice that it's illegal to create a fictitious business and take deductions, he could easily be prosecuted either by the federal government or Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, for cheating on state taxes the same way. And that, I think, is the most brazen thing in there. And uh, David K. Johnson, for those people who are not familiar with these Schedule C's, what are the IRS regulations about being able to have a business that has no income but holds, has all kinds of expenses? And how long can that go on before the IRS normally uh, uh, has a red flag to go after you? Right. You can start up a business and have expenses to start up, but you have to show that you were attempting to make a profit if you go on for five years, the IRS will almost always declare that this is a hobby and the taxpayers aren't going to subsidize your hobby. But that Trump did 26 of these shows how determined he was to thumb his nose at the law. And Trump has always done this. I mean, I've known Donald now for almost 35 years, and he's always thumbing his nose at the law when he gets caught as he has repeatedly in various civil and regulatory actions and, and some court cases like where he cheated illegal immigrants, uh, as he called them, who were brought into the country to work for him. Um, he always somehow says, oh, no, this is a great victory for me. You don't know what you're talking about. It's too complicated. Nonsense. Donald Trump's been a criminal his whole life. He's just very good at evading law enforcement. And uh, unlike, let's say, uh Reporter like Maggie Haberman, whose recent book on Trump has gotten a lot of attention as a new expert on Trump. There are people like you and, of course, the late, great Wayne Barrett, who have been tracking, who were tracking Trump over decades. Uh, what this whole issue of him actually during the six years of, of uh, his running for president and being president actually having uh, uh, net losses? Could you talk about that? Well, Donald reported net losses. We should think about that the way when we talk about crime, reported crime. We don't know the real level of that. So Donald reported massive losses so big that he had 150 some million dollars of positive income, wages, capital gains, dividends, interest and pensions, 150 million plus. But his tax returns show negative income of about 53 million dollars. That's a $200 million swing. A lot of that was accomplished through laws that a law that Donald Trump lobbied for 
1992 that allows real estate people, people who are re big real estate investors, not mom and pop, uh, I own, you know, one rental unit people, but big real estate investors to live pretty much tax free if their only income is from real estate and the rest of their income is modest. Uh, Donald, uh, I've been told by a number of retired IRS agents who've reached out to me that they've gone over the returns and their fundamental conclusion, and these are people who don't know each other, they know me, they all said the same thing. A lot of the numbers on the tax returns appear to be just made up. Of course, who ever heard of Donald just making something up? The tax returns, Amy, show that Donald paid more taxes, income taxes, to foreign governments than to the United States. And Donald's foreign entanglements as president should concern us a lot. You'll recall in the 2016 campaign, he said, you know, the Saudis buy lots of apartments for me. They pay big prices. Why shouldn't I like them? I like them. That tells you that he's influenced by people putting money in his pocket, and the president of the United States should not be. He should be insulated from that. Uh, everything you heard Donald say during the two debates with Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden was basically nonsense. Uh, in the case of paying taxes, there's a tiny sliver of truth because he paid overseas. The rest of it is absolute nonsense, and he knew it was absolute nonsense. But understand, Donald has no problem with lying through his teeth. He's lied under oath in judicial proceedings. Uh, Donald, Donald essentially believes that whatever he says makes it so. So he just makes stuff up. What about breaking David, the law? Well, why didn't auditors catch Donald Trump is a very good question. First of all, uh, Congress has given the IRS for two decades, um, more than two decades, extra money to pursue the working poor and make sure they don't cheat on their taxes. But at the top, the Republicans have ordered the cuts of audits of corporations and wealthy people. Almost 25,000 families make $10 million a year or more. In the most recent year, we have data, 66 audits were closed. That's nothing. That's a fraction of 1% of those families. Secondly, Donald knows that so long as he has loss carry forwards, that is a tax deduction he couldn't use this year, but he can use in future years. An auditor assigned to his tax return would quickly conclude that even if he found a whole bunch of bogus material, he'd still owe no taxes. So the IRS practice is generally to close such a file and move on to one that's easier and will produce immediate revenue. We need to change that. Um, I've asked the IRS and members of Congress now for decades to conduct a detailed study of people who report negative incomes, not once in a while because a business fails, but year after year after year, which is what Trump does. I think we discovered some shocking things about our tax system. Yes, Juan. Uh, David, uh, I'd like to ask you in terms of this, going back to the Schedule C issue that we, you mentioned, you highlighted, uh, in one piece you wrote about it, you said that you thought that this was the easiest case to make in terms of a potential criminal uh, activity. Uh, why is that? And why would a jury be more likely to find someone guilty uh, on just on these Schedule C violations than on the more complex uh, legal issues that, that arise when you study Trump's filings uh, in depth? Yeah. Juan, first of all, that's not the most important case to bring. The most important case are the human intelligence documents he stole and took to Mar-a-Lago. But on the tax front, 
creating a fictitious business and taking tax deductions for it is a plain and simple thing ordinary people can understand. Many of the things Donald Trump has done with his taxes are esoteric. It took me years and years and years to learn uh, how the tax system really works. We pay tax lawyers tremendous amounts of money because our tax code unnecessarily is ridiculously complicated and involves very complex uh, concepts involving accounting and depreciation and recognition of income and all sorts of terms that I'm sure most people watching are going, what? Uh, but this is simple and easy to prove. And remember, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, got 17 felony convictions on 17 charges against the Trump organization and a subsidiary company, both 100% owned by Donald Trump, for much smaller tax fraud involving freebies that were untaxed to executives, uh, cars, apartments, things like that. Uh, showing that to people, here's the tax return. There's no evidence of a business that existed. He took these deductions. There's no evidence of uh, documentation, receipts and invoices and things that show actual business. People will grasp that, I believe, and it would not, I, I think it would take a prosecutor at most three days to present the case. Finally, uh, why was only one IRS agent um, charged with investigating and reviewing Donald Trump's taxes when he was president? The significance of that kind of review not having happened, even though it's the law, David. Right. Um, presidential tax returns and vice presidential returns are supposed to be audited. Biden and uh, uh, Kamala Harris have been audited. Obama and Biden were audited. Donald Trump appointed the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, and he appointed Charles Reddick, who until recently was the IRS commissioner. And while they say they had no idea that these audits weren't being done, they're responsible. Doesn't matter if you didn't know. The question is, why didn't you know? Assigning a single IRS agent to something this complex and refusing him access to specialists. The IRS employs we have specialists ten seconds. in everything, all sorts of things. It shows you that this is the lawlessness of the Trump administration. They were lawless. Just a quick heads up that these next couple of clips are taking you on a time warp. The first is of Barack Obama in 2009, just weeks before being sworn in as president. And the following clip is from 2010. The most popular question on your own website is related to this uh, on change.gov. It comes from Bob Furtick of New York City, and he asks, will you appoint a special prosecutor, ideally Patrick Fitzgerald, to independently investigate the gravest crimes of the Bush administration, including torture and warrantless wiretapping? Um, we're still evaluating how we are going to uh, approach the whole issue of uh, interrogations, detentions, uh, and so forth. Uh, and obviously we're going to be looking at past practices. Uh, and uh, I don't believe that anybody is above the law. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I also have a belief that we need to look forward as, low, as opposed to look, looking backwards. Uh, and part of my job is to make sure that, uh, for example, at the CIA, uh, you've got extraordinarily talented people who are working very hard to keep Americans safe uh, I don't want them to suddenly feel like they've got to spend all their time 
uh, weren't looking over their shoulders and, and lawyers. So no 9-11 commission with independent subpoena power? You know, we have not made final decisions, but my instinct is for us to focus on how do we make sure that moving forward uh, we are doing the right thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, if somebody has blatantly broken the law that they are above the law. But my orientation is going to be to move forward. So, so let me just press that one more time. You're not ruling out prosecution, but will you tell your Justice Department to investigate these cases and follow the evidence wherever it leads? What I, uh, I think my general view when it comes to my attorney general is he's the people's lawyer. Uh, Eric Holder's been nominated. His job is to uphold the Constitution and look after the interests of the American people, not to be swayed by my day-to-day -day politics. Uh, so ultimately, he's going to be making some calls. But my general belief is that when it comes to national security, what we have to focus on is getting things right uh, in the future as opposed to uh, looking at what we got wrong in the past. You know, you mentioned Office of Professional Responsibility in the Justice Department is tasked with the the job of figuring out who is, you know, following the laws within the Justice Department, who's following the Constitution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're the ones that keep an eye out to make sure the Justice Department is actually following the law, right? So they had an investigation of the infamous torture memos during the Bush administration, mainly written by Jay Bybee and John Yoo, and they wanted to see if they, the people who wrote these memos were following internal Justice Department guidelines and were following the law itself. Right? And they came to a conclusion that they had not, that they had done professional misconduct. They basically, in order to appease the policy uh, people over at the White House, namely Dick Cheney, his uh, top lawyer, David Addington, etc., uh, wrote opinions that uh, now the Office of Professional Responsibility think uh, were not justified by the law at all. So that they should be brought up, not in a criminal trial, but brought to the bar to have them explain how in the world did you come up with these opinions inside the Justice Department saying it was okay to torture when it seems so absolutely and clearly against the laws of this country. And to give you a sense of how egregious John Yu was, the Office of Professional Responsibility, in the middle of the investigation, invited him in to ask him questions. And he came in and answered. And they asked him, hey, um, let me ask you a wild hypothetical. Quote, what about ordering a village of re resistance to be massacred? Is that a power that the president could legally have? Now, they're asking this because John Yu wrote memos saying the president has the power to do anything, anything. He can torture people, he can ignore Congress's laws. As long as we're in a time of war, and we are always at war with terrorism, the president is above the law, basically. Now, that's unjustifiable in our system, according to our laws and according to our Constitution. That's why they think this is professional misconduct. But they're giving him an opportunity here. Could the president order a massacring of civilians? Here's John Yu's answer. Yeah. Although, let me say this, so, so certainly that would fall within the commander of chief's power over tactical decisions. Not unclear. Yes, it falls within his tactical decision power making. If he'd like to massacre civilians, perfectly uh, capable of doing that, and that would be perfectly legal. And the investigator is shocked. He can't believe it. He asks, to order a village of civilians to be exterminated? 
Use answer, sure. He didn't stutter. So, now this is obviously against the law. It's not even taking U.S. law into consideration at all. It's just John Yu's opinion that, yeah, the president can do any damn thing he likes. He can murder anyone he likes. It's crazy, right? So, why am I angry at the Obama administration? Well, they sent in a hack. Uh, what In the terms of the Washington media, they call him a, a career veteran. His name is David Margolis. He takes the conclusions of the Office of Professional Responsibility that said this was professional misconduct on you and Bybee's part, and he changes it. Did he do his own separate investigation? Did he interview you? Did he go through all the things that they did? Nope. He's a political hack brought in to wash things over. So he takes that and goes, no, it's not professional misconduct. I, in my uh, you know, infinite wisdom, have decided that it does not rise to that level. It's just simply um, something we disagree with. Well, it's just a matter of disagreement then, isn't it? So they will not be brought before uh, the bar. There will be no uh, investigation. No crimes were committed, even though they did all this investigation and said they sh that this was misconduct. Throw that in the garbage because they brought in a politician or a guy who will do whatever a politician says, and in this case, Obama, to say, we're going to look forward, we're not going to look backward. The Justice Department's job is not to look at crimes of the past, which is, of course, nonsense. That's exactly what the Justice Department is supposed to do. They look at crimes that happened. They're not supposed to look into the future, what crimes might possibly happen. No, you look at the crimes that did happen and prosecute them. So they are free to go. No one will suffer any consequences for the torture that was ordered, for the ridiculous, outrageous, so-called legal memorandum that were written to justify it, and John Yu will continue to be a, a law professor. Ha! A law professor. Here's the, the critical part. It's one thing for somebody to break the law. It's another thing for someone to sanction it. Sanctioning it is almost worse. Because, look, you'll always have criminals. You'll always have people pushing the boundaries, in this case, of our democracy. To say, oh, no, no, the president is above the law. The president can break the law. The president could order torture. The president could order murder. And none of it matters. You'll always have those guys. It, but if you don't punish them, or if you don't at least say, hey, this is misconduct, this was legally wrong, then you say, it's okay. It's sanctioned. And the next time a Republican comes in office, or maybe a Democrat, they're going to turn back and say, well, it was a matter of disagreement. It's not really illegal. It's not really misconduct. It's just a matter of disagreement. So now we go back to torturing and killing. And that is more dangerous than anything else. Obama here, with honestly, in my opinion, his cowardice in not pursuing what the real Justice Department findings were, in burying them, has set a terrible and grave precedent. precedent. Torture is no longer illegal. It's just a matter of opinion. And it's hard to do more damage to the country than by setting that precedent.
what I was saying is that um, the the report focuses primarily on the personalities, on Donald Trump and the other people we've heard mentioned a lot. But as you get toward the end of the report, and I think page 689, they have their recommendations. And their recommendations are important uh, because it's really the policies that come out of this that ultimately will protect us from future incidents like January 6th, 2021. And what they propose is a reform of the, which is moving through Congress now. It looks like that may actually happen. Uh, they also propose uh, taking steps that will allow to have much more clarity as regards Article 14, Section 3 of the Constitution, which says that a office holder who supports an insurrection or gives aid and comfort to an insurrection, participates in an insurrection, uh, can be barred from office. And so they want to give clarity of that to that so that Congress can act on that issue in the future. Now, all of this takes us back, Amy, to the reality that this Congress, particularly this Senate, failed uh, back in February of 2021 uh, in the impeachment process. Had Donald Trump been convicted by the Senate, then we would have had clarity on, on these issues at that point. Because that didn't happen, now we have a series of recommendations, which in some ways are an admission that uh, Congress doesn't think that the impeachment process probably will ever work, so they want to have another vehicle to bar those who participate in insurrections. The final thing I'll mention as regards the recommendations, and it's a disappointment on my part, is that the committee did not make a clear statement that the Electoral College should be abolished. Because the fact of the matter is that the Electoral College is the root of a lot of these problems, this you know convoluted you know mess of a system, uh, which has you know the votes being counted at certain points and then transferred to Congress and all that created the real opening for Donald Trump and his allies uh, to do the things that they did, and and I think that while abolishing the Electoral College would be difficult, it's something that clearly the committee should have recommended. They did make recommendations, but did not go that far, John. Can you explain That's what right. those recommendations are? Well, it, it, as regards the Electoral Count Act, as regards the um, uh, the clarity on 14.3, and then there's a number of other recommendations, Amy, within uh, this list for just simply making the processes of Congress work more effectively as regards oversight. Um, and so there— they're a, a, a solid set of recommendations, but not a bold set of recommendations, to my view. They also dealt with a number of issues. For example, they said that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, yeah. um, said, why are we allowing the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers to be there? This was days before the January 6th protest, uh, but he'd not get support in what he had to say. Uh, you have um, Cassidy Hutchinson um, and her lawyer. Um, Cassidy Hutchinson was then out of work. She was asked to uh, speak before the committee. And her lawyer um, was given to her by, as she put it, Trump world, Stefan Passantino. And he told her— um, that 
she should simply say, don't recall. She did that, apparently, the first time around, and she uh, testified before um, the staff several times she was questioned, and then came out and said, I feel like I am lying. Um, actually, it's interesting. The latest news is that Stefan Passantino has—is on um, leave from his law firm. And many legal experts are saying, um, as a message to other lawyers like Passantino, is that if you interfere in this way, this is literally um, <clears throat> witness tampering, and that you can go to jail. Right. Look, um, this report is incredibly detailed, and it does, in fact, look at a lot of the issues as regards the attempts by former President Trump and his allies to thwart this investigation. Uh, and you can understand why. At the heart of this report, uh, and at the heart of what the committee has done, are recommendations that Trump be prosecuted and that his close, some of his closest allies be prosecuted. So that, I think they knew from the start that this was where the whole process was headed, and they wanted to undermine and, and weaken that process. And so the report goes into a lot of detail on that. And some of that may well uh, turn out to be significant as regards uh, future prosecutions and future action by the Justice Department. But I would counsel, Amy, there's a, there's a significant aspect of this that we should be conscious of. This report is really a roadmap. It is a roadmap as regards what the Department of Justice might do. It is also a roadmap as to what Congress might do. It is not a certainty by any means. Uh, there is a lot. There are still a lot of open areas uh, and open questions within the report that effectively the committee says, well, the Department of Justice is going to have to go deeper on this. They're going to have to explore this more thoroughly. They're going to have to ask more questions. And so I think people should be very cautious about assuming that simply because this report has been released with its recommendations to the Department of Justice and to Congress, that we are necessarily going to have uh, a true moment of accountability. Again, I keep coming back to this point. The moment of accountability should have been back with impeachment uh, in February of 2021. And uh, you and I talked a lot about impeachment before that. Uh, and, and I remember I was in Madison on uh, January 6th when, when things occurred. And because I'd written so much about impeachment, my phone started ringing off the hook. And, and I really, you know, did, I think, believe for a few days there that it was possible we'd have the accountability moment as it was intended. Instead, what we ended up with is this long, very slow process of trying to find a route to accountability. And I would emphasize, we're still not there. What's coming up next is one or more segments that were originally only for members, but since this is a reposted episode, I've unlocked them for everyone. Enjoy, and if you like getting the extra content, think about becoming a member yourself. We begin the new calendar with a topic we covered heavily throughout 2022, the January 6th investigation, and more specifically, the role of Virginia Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, better known as Ginny. We learned in 2022 that Mrs. Thomas texted state lawmakers and even Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, urging them all to overturn the election and keep Trump in office. But don't let the bland headlines downplay or even normalize what those texts represent. Those texts weren't the reasonable asks of a concerned citizen. Ginny Thomas's texts were unhinged, 
full of far-right conspiracy theories. Like this message she sent to Meadows in November 2020, first obtained by the Washington Post, claiming the Biden crime family would be arrested and living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. She also referred to watermarked ballots and a military white hat sting operation, both phrases often pushed by QAnon types. Later in the month, when Meadows tried to ease her concerns about the election results, Thomas replied, thank you, needed that, this plus a conversation with my best friend just now. We and others in the media speculated who that best friend could be. But now we can finally put all that speculation aside, thanks to the transcripts released by the January 6th committee over the holiday week, where Ginny confirms that her best friend is exactly who we thought it was all along. Her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas. Surprise! See, Ginny Thomas did a voluntary sit-down with the committee in September. She wasn't subpoenaed. She wasn't under oath. Did you speak with your husband and book your release of the election, Gene Swollen? <laughs> in the transcript of that interview, we see that Ginny Thomas is asked, do you recall who you were referring to when you said you had just had a conversation with your best friend? It looks like it was my husband, she says. The committee continues, do you remember what you talked to Justice Thomas about that made you feel better and allowed you to say, keep holding on? I wish I could remember, she responds, but I have no memory of the specifics. Later, the question, do you recall having any conversations with your husband about the fact that you were in contact with Mr. Meadows in this post-election time frame? Absolutely not, she says. He found out in March of this year when it hit the newspapers. He had no idea that I was texting Mark Meadows about the election. Now, we can all choose whether or not to believe Ginny Thomas when she says her husband didn't know about her texts. She claims she doesn't discuss her day-to-day work in politics with him, as he's apparently uninterested in politics. I choose to say, yeah, right. But even if you take her testimony at face value, the fact that she had a discussion with her husband, whom she calls her best friend, someone who helped her feel better, all while she was plotting behind the scenes to overturn a presidential election, it calls into serious question why Justice Clarence Thomas, the lone dissenter, you'll recall, when the Supreme Court allowed Trump's documents to be released to the 1-6 committee in an 8-1 vote, why Justice Thomas was and could still be hearing any cases related to Donald Trump or the 2020 election at all. Democrats should have acted on this months ago. Again, on this show, we pointed out that impeachment is an option. So what are Democrats doing about it now? Well, here's one six committee member Zoe Lofgren. Well, it did strike me as uh, as a wrong behavior. I think, based on this, that Justice Thomas would be well advised to recuse himself uh, from from participating in matters that relate uh, to this. Ah, yes, simply calling for him to recuse himself again. Something he's refused to do so far, and there's no reason to think he'll change his mind on that. Democrats have squandered an opportunity, an opportunity they had to impeach him when they controlled the House. They no longer have a majority in the House. That's now a non-starter. Good job, Dems. Now, there are some other interesting and important revelations from the Ginny Thomas transcript. She still believes there was fraud in the 2020 election, still believes it. When told by committee vice chair Liz Cheney that people like Attorney General Bill Barr and White House counsel Pat Cipollone told Trump there was no evidence of widespread fraud, Thomas doubles down on her election denialism, saying it wouldn't change her mind if she knew of those statements at the time. Quote, 
There's a lot of people uncomfortable with the 2020 election, despite what this committee is pushing. Okay, she tells Cheney, I just think there's still concern. She later adds, I just think there's still a lot of things that are still being uncovered. And so I believe there was fraud and irregularity, contrary to clearly what you believe. Betcha can't guess what she says when asked what her evidence for this fraud and irregularity was. Quote, I can't say that I was familiar at that time with any specific evidence, she tells committee member Jamie Raskin, who asked what the most significant case of voter fraud she was concerned about. When pressed later on, she repeats, she repeats, I don't have specific evidences of fraud. It was just a general belief that was motivating me at the time. In other words, I believe it, therefore it must be true. Facts be damned. But make sure the Biden crime family are locked up at Guantanamo, nevertheless. Ginny Thomas does have one regret, though. When asked if she regrets her text to Mark Meadows or if she regrets that they became public, Thomas says, I regret the tone and content of these texts. I wish I could have rewritten them. I wish I didn't send them. It was just an emotional time. Yeah. Despite everything Ginny Thomas told the committee in four hours of questioning, it wasn't testimony, despite everything we've seen in these texts, Ginny Thomas's name appears in the January 6th committee's final report exactly, let me see, one, two, three, zero times. No mention at all in over 800 pages. Somehow the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice being involved in an attempt to undo a free and fair election, an attempt that resulted in the deadly attack on the Capitol, somehow that doesn't merit a spot in the final report. In the meantime, her husband remains on the highest court in the nation, ruling on cases not just related to the 2020 election, but cases that could change how our elections are conducted going forward, full stop. And that, that should be a national scandal. Joining me now is Slate staff writer Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts and the law, and former Republican congressional aide and never Trump Arena Shah, founder of the firm Relax Strategies, and of Republican Women for Biden. Thank you both for joining me on the show. Happy New Year to you both. Rena, let me start with you. What is your biggest takeaway from Ginny Thomas's testimony that we got hold of over the break? And where do we go from here in terms of accountability for her role in all of this? As I said earlier, she's not mentioned at all in the final 1-6 committee report. The biggest takeaway for me is power protects power. And for Liz Cheney, who by so many of us has been seen as this great patriot, somebody who really stood up and, and faced down some ugly ugliness of her own party and refuses to leave the party, why couldn't she go all the way? Why did it have to stop at Ginny Thomas? And to me, this is the real stark reality of our politics is that nobody is really willing to go all the way anymore. There always has to be this caveat. It seems like, again, even with the people who we see as the, the loudest and, and the, the messengers who, who have the best things to say, like Liz Cheney, even they are sometimes not willing to put country over party. And that's the only takeaway I can take, I can glean from this because Ginny Thomas, to me, d deserves to be behind bars. There was reporting uh, from last year that Liz Cheney uh, has a relationship with the Thomases and didn't want the committee to go too aggressively uh, after Ginny Thomas. Uh, Thomas, who, of course, 
denies any role in any kind of coup, denies that she's committed any kind of crimes. I was talking to some friends over Christmas and I was making this point that in the old days, you know, I'm a, anyone who knows me knows I'm a critic of conservatism, critic of the Republican Party. But in the old days, you could have a legitimate debate over should the tax rate be higher or should the tax rate be lower? Today, the political debate is, do you believe Hillary Clinton was operating a pedophile cabal in a pizza restaurant basement? Or do you believe Joe Biden's family should be locked up at Guantanamo Bay? That is not normal political debate. And to know that the wife of a Supreme Court justice is peddling this stuff uh, at the highest levels of government. Mark, how is it that Justice Clarence Thomas isn't under any real pressure to recuse himself? We played Zoe Lofgren a moment ago uh, saying he should recuse himself. A few Democrats here and there have said that. None, as far as I'm aware of, maybe AOC off the top of my head, have called for his impeachment back in the day. Obviously, the House is now controlled by the Republicans. That's not happening. But where is the outcry from the Democratic Party, from sections of the quote unquote liberal media, that Justice Thomas is ruling on cases involving Trump, involving the election, involving future elections? Well, you know, I think partly this is a fundamental flaw in the American democratic system. We love to praise the Constitution as divinely inspired, but the reality is that the men who wrote it were mortals who simply did not envision that someone as corrupt as Clarence Thomas would ever sit on the Supreme Court and refuse to recuse himself from cases in which his own wife tried to overturn the election and nullify millions of votes. And because there's no real chance of him being removed, I mean, he'd have to be impeached and then voted the two-thirds of the Senate to remove, I think Democrats have decided to just save their energy, save their breath. And outside of a few who are very activated on the courts, like uh, Ocasio-Cortez, they don't think this is a battle worth fighting. They think they should keep their powder dry for other areas where they're willing to really leave it all on the field. But I will tell you that Nancy Pelosi for all of her her wonderful attributes, she really put on kid gloves when it came to the courts. She was not willing to go all in on dealing with the conservative Republican takeover of the courts. Hakeem Jeffries is different. He is of a different generation. He is, of course, the new Democratic leader in the House, and he has spoken eloquently and fiercely about Justice Clarence Thomas's corruption and about his desire to root out broader corruption and partisanship in the judiciary. So I think Democrats are waking up to the fact that they need to talk about this and address it directly, but they're still stumped by the lack of options for direct action, and they're feeling their way towards some kind of consensus that'll let them move next time they regain power in the House and the Senate. We know that Nancy Pelosi almost mocks the idea of expanding or rebalancing the court. We know that Joe Biden set up a commission on the court and then kicked it, you know, kicked the can down the road when some members of that commission were saying, well, let's talk about expanding the court, although the majority uh, didn't say that. It's a real problem. I should remind our viewers at home that the Supreme Court, uh, Mark, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only court in the country that doesn't have to abide by any kind of external ethics code. Uh, They are self-regulating and that's worked out wonderfully. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash 
support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.